Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. Uh, this week, we're talking to Sean Claybo. Sean, do you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Now, we're probably going to publish this on both My JavaScript Story and My Angular Story, since uh, you do Angular as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think we've only had you on JavaScript Jabber, if I remember right. Right, right, right. Most of my work now is in Angular, but uh, the topic that we had was more kind of general purpose, so we put it on JavaScript Story. Yep. So, yeah, I'll put a link to that. That was episode 258 of JavaScript Jabber. And, uh, yeah, we talked about working in a public institution, which is different from sort of your regular corporate job. So it was interesting to kind of dive into that and see what, yeah, what, what the differences are and, and where, where your background kind of feeds into that. So. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, and sorry to say, I mean, today's April Fool's as we, as we record this. I didn't really think of any good things to do to you here. That's okay. I, I enjoyed the, the D&D books that you good. had sitting there in front of the camera when I got on, so that, that's always fun. Um, <laughs> I played some D&D in college and then I, or in high school, and then I've, I've kind of gotten into it recently with my brothers and sisters. So, well, some of my brothers and sisters. So, yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I did in junior high and high school, and then my, my son's into it a little bit now that and Pathfinder I think is the other version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I'm not familiar with Pathfinder. Something like, something like that. He tells me about, so he enjoys it too. Yeah. Yeah. I played a couple of different role-playing games. So yeah, I guess that's just another one that's out there. But uh, in high okay. school, I think we played one called mage. If I remember right. Anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Not familiar with that one, but yeah. It's always fun to talk D&D, but uh, we're here to talk more uh, software and development. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's jump in and talk about your background and where you got into programming. Um, I'm, I'm a little curious as we get started. Yeah, how did you get into programming? Um, for me, it started back, I can remember it actually pretty clearly in fourth grade. You know, for, for me, fourth grade was 1976, so we're talking a long time back. Dude. Um, and I remember a guy came in and he talked about this machine that his dad built. Mm -hmm. Talked about, you know, put it together parts and then you could tell it what to do and then it could spit things back at you. At you. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. So I didn't know the guy that well, but I just had to invite myself over his house to check this thing out. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, there was no personal computers at this time. So right. it was just something totally new. Um, you know, so I went over and checked it out. It was like probably two feet cube and it had an eight inch floppy drive and no graphics text only. And I must've spent at least a good part of the afternoon over there, just dinking around on it. The only game it had was this like artificial intelligence game where you, you ask a question and it just responded with a random question back to you. And you just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But I don't know. Right. I just thought it was just, just the coolest thing ever. So that was my first exposure to computers. And that's just what, I don't know. It was just something was just innate in me that I just thought they were just so cool and so interesting that I had to find out more. After that, the schools didn't really get computers until I was like in eighth grade. So through eighth grade and high school, everything was TRS-80s and Apple IIs and mm -hmm. things like that. And, you know, as soon as they got them, I was signed up. And then yeah, also- I had Apple IIs when I was in elementary school. So <laughs> they had a whole lab of them. Yeah, we only had one Apple II 
and we probably had eight or ten terrace eighties. Uh-huh. Uh, that's all the, the school could afford at that time until right. high school. Then we had a lab of Apple twos and I would stay after school every day. And you know, a lot of times it was playing games, but it was also learning programming, you know, Apple soft basic. And then also some of the machine language stuff that um, you could do with the Apple twos and get in there and try to make it play music by doing peaks and pokes of the registries and things right. like that. So I was just totally into it throughout junior high and in high school. And that's when I got my first computer. It was a TRS-80 color computer, a whole 4K of RAM. Yeah, that was a ton back then, wasn't it? That was a ton, you know, cassette drive. And I had one, a, a black and white television that I did through the uh, Bikeathon, which was a fundraising thing back then. And uh, I wrote a hangman game for it. And I could only fit 25 words before I met <laughs> any more than 25 words and it would just crash. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting just to kind of go into the Wayback Machine and, and talk about some of this stuff because, um, you know, I'm taking my kids to NGComp this year uh, to go through the kids track and they're going to teach them how to program and they will have no concept whatsoever of this stuff, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they're going to be talking about machines that had, you know, 16 or 32 gigs of RAM and, you know, a two terabyte hard drive is, oh my gosh, that's so ancient. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was talking about to one of my family members the other day, we we're talking about telephones and flashbacks to when they had, you know, the 20 foot curly cords on it. So you can go across the room with your phone. I know. And then they went cordless and you could like walk into the other room. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Well, even the, even the people coming into programming now, I mean, you know, if, if they were lucky, they, they get to use one of these older machines, but yeah, otherwise, you know, they, they kind of grew up in the internet age and, and you and I, you, you're a little older than I am because in 1976, my parents weren't even married, but uh, you know, you mentioned fourth grade being, you know, then, but um you know, so I, I didn't even exist. I was born in 79, but yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, they, they just, it's a different, um, perspective on what technology is and, and where, where it's come from and things have changed a lot. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. But there's still some, I still have habits though. You know, I still try to think about how much I'm using for memory and all that kind of stuff, even though I really don't have to be so worried about it anymore. I still find myself trying to make things as compact and, and if, as efficient as possible when I'm developing things. So. Yeah. And it's funny um, in things like JavaScript or Ruby or um, I think .NET has a VM and is garbage collected. Um, you, you still have to play those games. It's just that the, the VM is doing the work for you. Right. And so um, you, you have to make sure that you are, you know, playing your reference cards right so it'll get cleaned up. <laughs> Otherwise, you still have uh, memory growth and, you know, some form of memory leaks in your code. Right. Right. So, so yeah, so you, you did some basic and, and other programming in junior high and high school. Um, and then you went to college, and I'm assuming you got a CS degree then? Yeah, I was CS and a minor in business. So when I went to college, you know, my first classes were C you know, plain C, not C++, you know, Pascal, Fortran, and COBOL. A lot of the classes were mainframe-oriented type stuff, which wasn't really what I was after when I came into college. You right. know, I wanted to learn. At that point in time, they finally came out with, you know, MS-DOS and IBM PCs and things like that, and I wanted to learn how to program desktops, but that wasn't what the you know, the coursework was geared towards. But looking back at it, you know, even though a lot of the technical things about programming, I didn't really use once I got out, a lot of the non-programming stuff really became beneficial to me. So a lot of the science classes and especially some of the business classes were really nice to have because now I can actually relate, you know, some of the things that I'm developing to the people that are using it or the people that are asking me to build it for them. 
because I can see their point of view much better than if I was just pure technical developer. Right. So I, I, yeah. I still lean that college is, is really beneficial, especially in the long term um, for, for developers. But I could see, you know, some people just can't afford college or, you know, four or five years that it takes to get through theirs is a long time. So, yeah, it's a tough I, I, choice. It's, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people and, um, you know, some people came up through a college degree and some people didn't. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, it really just boils down to what you wanted to get out of it. And it also comes down to how you learn and, and how, how you, you know, how you operate as a person. And so some people, yeah, college is just not the right answer for them. And for a lot of other people, it really is. And it just depends again, like you said, you know, a lot of the things that you picked up were the non-programming things. And if you're looking for that kind of an education, then yeah, college is terrific. And, you know, I did a lot of things in college didn't make a whole lot of sense if you're looking at it strictly from a, can you get hired or, you know, are you going to get where you want to be? One of which is my Italian minor, right? Mm -hmm. But um, it, it did change the way that I look at certain aspects of the world and it was, it was well worth it that way. Um, so I agree with you on, on that basis. Um, but I have some people that they come in and they really want they just want to get as quickly as possible into a programming job. And if that's the only thing and you're not as interested in some of the other aspects of things that you pick up from college, maybe it's not the right answer. And I think people have to make an individual decision on that. But I definitely agree with you as far as all of that goes. If you want a well-rounded education and a great experience as far as those things go, then college is definitely the way to go. So. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, you're, you're a potential to be in that that career for 40, yep. 45 years. So, you know, some of that extra education uh, can come in real handy long-term. Well, and they tend to focus a lot more on, um, how, how, how do people put it? The data structures and algorithm stuff. Right. You just don't pick up kind of learning it on your own. Right. So, so you know, I, I can understand a B tree. I can understand sorting yeah. algorithms and all, all those types of things. Even when I was a student, we had to write a compiler. So we learned tokenization, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it does come in handy that I know I can understand how the things are working underneath my programming level. Yeah, I come at it a little bit different. I was a computer engineering major, which means that my, most of my classes were over in the engineering department, not the CS department, which was part of the math department mm -hmm. when I was going to school. I did t still take plenty of CS classes because it was kind of a blend. But a lot of the things that I picked up as we moved through things were, yeah, how, how stuff operate, operates at what we as programmers would uh, term the bare metal, um, how the chips are laid out, things like that. And then, you know, as you move up, it's, okay, well, I had to write uh, assembly, <laughs> right, that ran on this dumb little chip. And... The, the debugger was, okay, I'm going to visually inspect all of the registers. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, uh, that's what I expect. That's what I expect. Nope, there. that's not what I expect. That's the problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. All the way up to the high-level stuff like how your operating system pages memory. And, yeah, again, you know, just understanding some of that stuff along with some of the other – I didn't take any of the algorithms classes. Uh, but I picked some of it up in some of the basic CS classes. And yeah, it's just a different view on things than you get anywhere else. I think a good middle ground for a lot of people might be looking at a two-year degree. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think, you know, there is a lot of extra classes that you'll take in a four-year degree that really don't, you know, help you that much. Where if you go to like associate's degree or something like that, it can be a little more focused and, uh, you know, doesn't take that long. It's not as expensive, but it yeah. does give you get a little more exposure into things that you might not get out of a boot camp or things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And so I, I encourage people, I used to just tell people, no, just do a boot camp. But I really have come back around to what, you know, what, what matters to you. And for some people, it's that diploma. They want the diploma. Okay, go to, go to college, right? If you, if you want to have the experience, go to college. If you just want to quick and dirty, get enough education, you know, 
get educated enough to get that job, then maybe the boot camp's the right way to go. Or if you're not really set up for four years of sitting in the class and, you know, going through that process, and some people aren't, then again, you know, go to boot camp. But well, yeah. Yeah. And nice thing about boot camp, though, is that, you know, if you don't really know that this is what you want to do, it <laughs> does, does help you get through that decision real quickly. Yeah. It's a highly intensive way to figure that out. Yep. I really hate doing this all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, yep. if, if by the middle of boot camp, you're dreading getting up and going to boot camp, it mm -hmm. might not be a good fit for you. Right. So you if said I, you were in fourth grade in 1976. That makes you about 13, 14 years older than I am. And so you, you mentioned going to college and learning C and Pascal and Fortran. And today, I, I don't know what they're teaching there. When I went, it was Java, Java and C++. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting to me to just see the progression there. And what I find is, I mean, Java wasn't the super hot technology. It, it was and it wasn't um, when I was in college, you know, in 1998 is when I started college. So, um, you know, but yeah, just seeing where some of these schools are going now with the languages they pick, where they're teaching Python or JavaScript or things like that, you know, some of the more progressive schools. Yeah. Now, when I was at, uh, worked over at University of Idaho, I actually got hired by the business department to teach a programming class there. Oh, wow. And I was teaching VB.net in those days. So you can get some more modern programming in college now. And I'm sure that they're teaching C Sharp and uh -huh. uh, probably, you know, Ruby and, and Java here now. So it is more, but they're not going to teach you things like Angular and React and right. those types of things. Like, it's still going to be a little more low level. Yeah, I've seen a little bit more of that in sort of the, trade school type setups mm -hmm. where, you know, they're, they're trying, but again, it's, it's sort of splitting that difference between the boot camps and the, um, and, and the four-year degree, right? So you're going for two years, you're getting some of this and some of that. And so when they want to turn people out into a job and they know that they don't have the four-year diploma. And so, you know, the skills are a little more relevant to them. And so they, they get a little bit more modern with their curriculum. So I remember after my first year of, of college here, because we weren't doing a lot of desktop programming during the summer, I actually went over and applied at Microsoft. <laughs> and uh, that was 1985. And I was like, dang, you know, if I would have got hired in 1985 at Microsoft, I'd probably be pretty set right now. But uh, yeah. I didn't hear back from them. And it actually took me a, f a few hours to find them. I, I grew up probably 25, 35 miles south of their campus right but back then they weren't at they had just moved to their current campus and there was only a couple buildings there and, and there was no google maps back then you had to open up the phone book and look at the address <laughs> and you know all oh, the good old days yeah the good old days you know the yellow pages and it's like okay i went to the first one in the yellow pages oh sorry we've moved it's okay go to the next one. Oh, we moved again and so and then I finally found them up at their at the Redmond campus there and applied, but I didn't hear back. But that's fine. I, I'm doing pretty good the way I'm at now. So Yeah, makes sense. It's a good story. Yeah, absolutely. So uh after you graduated, did you go straight into software or uh I, I actually didn't. Um because I didn't have that desktop programming experience and I didn't want to go out and find a mainframe job. I ended up doing a few different odd things. Um, I did cable TV commercial production for a while for a local um, cable company because they didn't have anybody to run all the equipment. So I did that for a while. And then uh, I moved back over to the Tacoma, the West side towards Seattle area right. and became a uh, assistant buyer for a computer electronics chain and they had 17 stores throughout the northwest here and so that was that was a cool job i just oh, i really yeah. like doing that job as assistant buyer you'd walk in every morning and there'd be stacks of software and a little hardware for you to to check out you know people wanted to buy your they wanted to, you to buy their stuff for your for the chain so they were sending you free stuff all the time and that was really cool but they had some financial issues and they kind of shut down and that's when i decided to go back in and learn a, a bit more programming. So I learned uh, VB.net 
And then I got hired at the University of Idaho in their IT help desk area. Nice. And this would have been 96. So just as the internet was coming online, Mm -hmm. And I remember first seeing my first HTTP colon slash slash. I said, what the hell is that? But that, that uh, quickly learned what that was. And through the help desk, my first commercial program that I wrote was a help desk tracking system. Because when I got there, all of their communications between the help desk, the networks team, the server team, and all that was done either by sticky note or broadcast emails. And so, oh, they had, wow. <laughs> so they, they had no idea who was working on what, what, right. what state, anything of the, of the requests were in and things like that. So it's like, okay, this has got to be made better. And that's kind of my, my strength is just looking at things and going, this is not the way it should be. There should be a much better way to do these types of things yes. to a, a database. Uh, there was no JavaScript that I could really use then. Like, so the only thing I did for this help desk tracking system was HTML and Perl. Mm-hmm. And it was on a Unix machine and through the controls of the buttons on the, on the HTML, it would pass the whole page off to this Perl script that would slice and dice the HTML based upon embedded comment tags. Right. So if I wanted to pull one job out of one, queue to move it over another, I would pass in the queue, the tag number, and it would just slice that HTML up and then insert it into another HTML document. And it did everything that way. And then it would also, it would generate emails based upon, you know, certain triggers. So that was my first commercial programming experience. That's interesting. Um, and, and it kind of mirrors mine a little bit. Um, I mean, my, my first IT job, I was working at the university. I was attending BYU uh, down here in Provo. And uh, I worked in the network operations center, which was attached to the uh, data center. So mm-hmm. we would go in there and, and uh, you know, we would work on the servers and things like that. Uh, funny enough, um, initially when I got that job, the data center... <laughs> Oh man, if you, if you work at BYU now and you work in the data center, uh, the, the, you don't know how good you've got it. Cause, uh, when we started, it was literally just this kind of back room on the end of the, um, the same building that the math and CS department were in. And so they were these big honking machines. We had a handful of racks in there and then, you know, these big, I guess they were mainframes, but, uh, yeah, so we would log into those and, it was it was awesome, and they built the data center while I was working there, and uh, so then we moved down into an actual, real life, nicely built data center with, um, you know, with all the bells and whistles in it. Um, but after I graduated, I moved into a, a job at Mozy, M-O-Z-Y dot com, and mm-hmm. I was running there. After too long, I was running their tech support team, and my first web app where I built like an actual app that people actually used was a help desk it was help desk software and it tracked all our phone calls and emails and everything else so yeah kind of an interesting parallel there so so you're working there at the university of washington and i think you're still there aren't you uh well that was university of idaho was when i worked at the help desk there and now i work at washington state university okay so eight miles i moved eight miles in the job but i still live over in idaho gotcha it's only about 20 minutes for me to get to work. So not a lot of traffic, but uh, yeah, anyway, you're working there and was that when you got into JavaScript or was that when you moved over to Washington state? Um, I was there, I was there for 17 years. So it was a, it was a good place to work. Um, And that's when I, yeah, I did get into JavaScript over there. It was with um, classic ASP and early ASP.net. And the first things that I did with JavaScript was just, you know, client side validation because in the ASP.NET model, everything is a full post back, you know, when it was early days, you know, you right. to update a, a page or any section of a page, you hit a button and post the whole page back and then it would come back to you and validation in the early, early days 
was, you know, post back and then reload <laughs> and show them what was wrong. Right. So I, I wrote JavaScript there to just do validation to let them know that what they're entering in is, is correct before having to do that full post back right. type of system. And then after that, they finally, you know, came out with jQuery and there was also um, Ajax calls um, so that you didn't have to do that full post back. You could just post back certain sections. And so it was just kind of a, an incremental progression of JavaScript use in the page to make the user experience much better and like I say, quicker for the person to get that feedback. Right. That, that was about when I got into my web development career. And if, I mean, I remember working on things. I was working in Ruby on Rails, but a lot of the JavaScript was written in anger <laughs> at that time. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess I have to do this in JavaScript and I guess I can use an Ajax you know, request to make it work. So were you enjoying JavaScript? Were you liking JavaScript? Were you thinking this is a direction I want to go? Or what, were you coding JavaScript in anger at that point as well? Um, well, I don't, I, I, don't get angry very much, but you know, I probably did have some angry moments with JavaScript. <laughs> I don't know if anybody says they didn't, they're completely, they're probably lying, but, but it was just because I was so used to, you know, a more structured uh, language right. dealing with C sharp and things like that. Um, all the functions within functions and the callbacks and things like that just got me frustrated to no end. And then ever trying to have to refactor things was just a big headache. And that's why I've lost most of my hair. <laughs> but it, 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 was, it was part of the deal, you know. It was, it was worthwhile to me right. uh, to make those improvements and, and, and evolve the applications over time um, to be better. And then when I really started enjoying JavaScript was probably 2013. And right. that's right when I switched from University of Idaho over to Washington State University. And I had a, that took that opportunity to say, okay, now what can I do to bring all these applications that I'm now inheriting up right. to up to snuff and the modern ways of doing things? And that's when I started with Angular JS, you know, one point three is I think the first person I started developing, first version I started developing in, and that's when I really started to actually enjoy working with JavaScript because I could do a lot more. Um, for my applications on the client to make them a lot richer and a lot more um, user-friendly. So I, I'm going to ask you this then, and this is an area that uh, some of my co-hosts on JavaScript Jabber would argue the point with you on uh, probably, but do you feel like people need a framework at this point in today's JavaScript land? Um, today, I would say there's still enough benefit to using a framework that is worthwhile. You know, I'm looking at some of the things coming down the pipe with WebAssembly and Blazor and some of those things that is going to be a lot more built into the browser mm -hmm. that we won't need a framework so much, but I think we're still a couple of years off from that really being something that you could just write a whole application without a framework and have it, have it be maintainable, uh, expandable, uh, and just well-designed. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm, <laughs> how do I put it? I'm working to, uh, and I need to re just reach out, but, um, I've known Ryan Florence for a number of years and he's a very strong proponent of you need a framework. And there are a couple of guys on the show that very much feel like you don't need a framework or at least for most applications, you don't need a framework. And so I'm really interested to have that conversation and just see, you know, okay, wh where do we see the trade-offs and, you know, what, what are the, the costs and benefits of having a framework? But yeah, so I thought I'd, I'd get that info in here first and then, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe you'll come out with the winner. I don't know. And I don't know if there will be a winner as much as just a good conversation about it. Right. Um, but the scale yeah. of the applications that I work on, the framework really makes it um, yeah. you know, much better in where I can componentize everything, yep. make it more reusable, scalable, all those types of things. So 
Right. Even though, you know, the application I work on right now is still got some old ASP.NET web forms. It's got some MVC, uh-huh. all, all in one application, but everything that I write new or everything that I can actually spend time to go back on and redo is all done and currently in, in Angular 7 plus. Nice. So that, that's one thing that I want to ask about is that with Ruby for a long time, there was the saying where people came for the rails and stayed for the Ruby. In other words, um, people got into Ruby because they got into rails. And then after a while they realized that the power was in Ruby and not necessarily, you know, in, in there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff you get from the rails way, but the really powerful stuff that you could do, you could do in Ruby and not rails. And I'm curious, um, has Angular made it so that you enjoy writing JavaScript or has Angular made it so that you enjoy writing Angular? Hmm. Good question. Good question. Um, I would say that I enjoy JavaScript, actually TypeScript. Mm-hmm. TypeScript has really been the, the big thing for me because, you know, being from a C-sharp background and being able to use TypeScript, um, has really made that just 10 times, 100 times better for me right? Um, by putting the syntax into it. And of course, you know, a lot of the syntax in, in TypeScript is now going to be, you know, the latest versions of JavaScript. So as soon as I can get rid of um, IE 11 support, then yeah, that opens up a whole bunch uh, more possibilities for the applications that I'm, I'm working in. So I'd say, yeah, you know, JavaScript TypeScript is much better. Angular to me was just kind of the enabler. You know, with right. the first version of Angular that I used, you know, having that you know two-way binding, just like everybody else is like, oh my god, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, and and made that stuff so easy to interact with, you know, data model and, and DOM. That that's I see those frameworks as just enablers, and you know, they, they allow you to bring new technologies like components development into, you know, kind of what jQuery did back in the early JavaScript days, you know, it just yeah. abstracts things away. So you don't have to deal with the headaches and you can be more productive. Yep. I, I definitely hear that. Um, and it's interesting to hear you talking about that because yeah, that is the direction that JavaScript's going in. In fact, um, TypeScript, they, tend to adopt um, TC39 ideas and implement them. Uh, Babel does the same thing. And yeah, it, it gives you this idea of where JavaScript's going. And uh, yeah, I found that I'm also much more productive in TypeScript. I think a lot of it has to do with the tooling. Um, and where I'm coming from, uh, Ruby land, right? And so, you know, it, it's not strongly typed. But a lot of those tools and a lot of the hints that you can give your application there just make it really, really handy to, to manage. So I've kind of come around <laughs> to <laughs> systems because of TypeScript. Cool. Uh, so yeah, so uh, what are you working on right now? Actually, before we get there, um, so Angular, was it the two-way binding or was it something else that brought you in and made you kind of go, this is where things are at? Because, I mean, we've talked a bit about JavaScript, but yeah, what, what was it about Angular that made you adopt it? Um, well, the two-way binding was, was really cool. So back 2013, what I looked at, um, Angular, uh, Ember, and one of the other frameworks that was available back then. And Angular just seemed to be the most intuitive to me, mm-hmm. the way that it was structuring uh, the code and, and handling the separation of concern, things like that. So, and because it had the backing of Google, I was like, okay, this is probably going to be sticking around for a while, which is right. something that I have to really look at it in the things that I choose because of how long applications live in, in an educational institution. Um, I've got to make sure that it's going to be around, it's going to be widely adopted so that if, you know, if I, if I leave and somebody else to take it over, it's not going to be that hard to find somebody that, that understands that technology. So all those factors into it uh, really kind of led me to Angular. And I figured, okay, well, I could start slowly on it because I wasn't building from scratch. I wasn't replacing the whole app, whole application. I was just adding on to an existing application. So I said, okay, let's 
try this out. And uh, it just worked well. And then when Angular 2 came out, I said, uh, I'll move over to that. And I still have some of those Angular you know, 1.3, 1.5 components in my application that are running you know, side by side with the current Angular and the you know, .NET web forms. And they're all uh, get along pretty well. So a lot of people, when they announced a lot of the changes in Angular 2, um, started looking around to decide if they were going to stick with it or not. Uh, did you do that or did you just more or less move into Angular 2? I just pretty much moved into it. Um, I, I like to keep up with the framework advancements. So, you know, I started with the 1.3, but as soon as they came out with 1.4, it's like, okay, switch everything over, then 1.5, and I switched everything over. And what really made that transition a lot better from AngularJS to Angular was because I had switched all my AngularJS stuff over to be using the component model that they had there. So right. my separation of my controllers and my views and things like that was pretty easy to convert over to you know, Angular 2, because all I had to do was basically change a little bit of the syntax in the templates and then strip out the, the Angular JS specific stuff in, in the controllers. And it pretty after that, it was almost fully ready to go to Angular 2. Nice. So uh, what, what are your favorite aspects of Angular now? Because they don't have the two-way data binding anymore. Right, right. But it's to build a component um, with the separation concerns um, and make all these things reusable with inputs and outputs. And, and you know, it doesn't have two-way binding, but it's got, I call it double one-way. So there's an yeah, in and out. Yep. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that big of a deal to me. And uh, because they, they still, you know, they've gone from Angular 2 to Angular 7 and not that long of a time, um, it continues evolving and getting better. And I, I think with uh, Angular 8, with the new um, Ivy renderer, I think those things look uh, really good. So I'm still happy with my decision to go with Angular. Nice. So what are you working on now? I, I almost asked that before, but I, I kind of wanted to push the Angular buttons a minute. Yeah. So my projects right now happen to deal with our compliance office. So we do research on animals and humans and things like that. And they had uh, a system for evaluating and reviewing their, uh, their protocols that the way that they're going to handle the animals and the, and the data and the research was all done by, you know, PDF form before and okay. through a SharePoint website. So I'm converting all that into uh, web-based application forms and workflow, routing and approval, reportings, searching, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's my big projects right now are compliance. And then we're also finally switching out of our, our centralized financial system right. off of a 40 year old mainframe and into a cloud-based system. So this summer I'll be taking a lot of time and uh, reworking all the integrations between my application and the, the central systems. That's cool. Man, I've talked to some companies um, and it seems like they're usually larger institutions like what you're talking about. So universities, banks, uh, you know, but they've got these huge mainframes that have all this custom code and stuff in them and it takes them a lot of time to move off. So it's, it's interesting to see that you're, you're doing that now. Are you just swapping out one system for the other or are you actually going to have to do some coding one way or the other to, you know, reach feature parity. For my uh, integration stuff, yeah, I'll have to rewrite a lot of this stuff because, you know, it's right now I'm pulling stuff out nightly out of a data warehouse um, mm -hmm. because the mainframe, you know, has no API I can call directly into it from a, from a website. Right. So I've got to go, I go from a data warehouse and I do some um, loading into our SQL server every night from, jobs that I got scheduled over there. So it's going to be moving everything from that kind of a process into where I can actually can call into web APIs and get more live real time data from the, from the central systems. Right. So, and because, you know, from mainframe to now a cloud-based 
financial system, you know, is going to make a lot of things uh, uh, different. That that sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. You know, yeah. right now our our timesheets are still on Excel spreadsheets and things like that, and so it's it's crazy. But we are finally, you know, getting into the 21st century for our central system, which will be real nice. Yep. Well, it's interesting too, just from the standpoint of that you're, you know, you're you're making some. I guess you being the university, not necessarily you personally, but uh, you know, the university is making some uh, short-term investments for some long-term payoffs. And a lot of times folks don't look at those upgrades until they become so prohibitively expensive, but yet so, you know, for example, again, I, I talked to somebody at a bank and, you know, it's a 10-year project now to replace one of their mainframes. And they finally started it because they're worried that if they wait another 10 years, they won't be able to find people that can even maintain the mainframe. And so, you know, you're not waiting until it's costing you so much um, in the way of, of manpower and, you know, being able to hire specialists who are now 70 or 80 years old. Right. right? right. Yeah, so exactly. You it's know. an interesting conversation to have. Very cool. Um, one other thing that I like to ask people is what kind of contributions have you made that you're particularly proud of? And it could be things that you've done at work that you've contributed to the university. It could be open source. It could be talks. It could be, I mean, anything, right? Um, mm -hmm. I find a lot of people focus on the open source and that's just one way to do it. But there are so many things that we all give back to the ecosystems we work in. Right. For me, I've, I've tried to um, submit some pull requests to some open source projects and I don't know what it was, but I've just never had that much luck. I've tried to make some features for some of these applications and I submit it and they, and they go, Oh, thanks. It's really cool. But, no, we want to, we don't want to do it that way. We don't want to do that or this, that it's like, okay, well, I spent all that time and I really, you know, now it's just getting rejected because that's not the way you wanted to go. So I, I kind of gave up on that. And so now what I try to do is to help out other people's when they're having issues mm -hmm. or whenever I have an issue and I'm researching whenever I find a solution, I make sure to go back to those posts where people were that I found when I'm searching that they were asking the same question and reply to with my solution that I found after my research. Right. So I, I do things that way and try to help people out. Um, I've do, done some missions to definitely typed. So if I find out a, something that's not uh, got the right type definitions for it, I'll contribute that way. Right. And then I also, um, go on a number of Slack groups and try to help out when anybody has a question on Angular or TypeScript or some of the .NET things that I've had experience with. So drawing on my now 20 plus years of you know, modern development, I try to help out other people to bring them up to speed. Right. That's cool. And, and I really... I think that's also often underappreciated is the help that's given in those kinds of Slack channels and stuff where, you know, people don't see it. It floats right by, but I mean, that, that's where a lot of people are and that's, that's where they're going to get the help is from somebody who's there with them. So, yeah, I had planned on giving a talk at the Boise code camp this year. Um, but I ended up having to be uh, out of town during that time. So I, I'll probably reschedule and do that next year. Yep. Cool. Are you familiar with the Boise Code Camp? Uh, they've done one in Salt Lake for quite a number of years, and I think they've done they've done a couple in Utah County as well. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've seen those. I haven't been to the Boise one. That that might be a fun one to hit. It is pretty fun. It's a one day thing. There's probably at least a thousand people there. Yeah. And they have a kids course, and so well, they do a lot of things with Lego Mindstorms, things like that for kids. Yep. So, and it's free to attend. So it's cool. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been, well, I've been working on booking and I haven't actually built it yet, but I've been working on booking a podcasting booth. And so it might be interesting to, you know, take that up, set it up in one of the public areas. You know, I'd have to get permission from the venue and things, but 
um, and from the organizers. But yeah, then just interview some of the speakers at the code camps and, you know, invite some of the other podcasters if there are other folks out there doing what I'm doing up in Boise or Salt Lake. I know there are a bunch of Salt Lake. Um, but yeah, just do that. that I, I hadn't thought about uh, pitching it to them. So that might be fun. Do that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. I've got a call here in about 15 minutes. So I've got to start wrapping this up. Okay. Picks for us? Yeah, I've got a few of them that I figured out. I figured I was going to give a shout out to the Utah JS Slack group. So I'm hanging out there whenever I'm at work. And so anybody wants to reach me, uh, they can find Sean Clavo at the, the Utah JS Slack group. Also the Utah.net Slack group. I'm a member of that too as well. Yep. And then uh, as we record this, it's April 1st. So tomorrow is the Visual Studio 2019 launch event. So I'll do Visual Studio 2019 is one of my picks. And then also the, the Boise Code Camp. So if anybody is, it's in March every year. So it was just over for this year. But if they are looking for things to do next year, uh, check out the Boise Code Camp. And then, are you familiar with the movie Time Bandits? No. Remember that movie? Nope. I had don't. Sean Connery in it. It was uh, you know, John Cleese. It's kind of a Monty Python type movie uh, with a bunch of dwarves that do some time travel and things like that. It's really funny. And I just found out that they're going to redo that movie. So I'm going to oh, interesting. Throw that out. Interesting. Time Bandits. A lot of times they don't do them as well as the originals. And sometimes it was like, wow, I didn't think they could do better than the original, but they did. So Yeah, I don't I don't I'm not holding out that the new one's gonna be better, but it just triggered my, you know, appreciation of that movie uh when it came out. And so if anybody has the opportunity to, to check out the original Time Bandits, check it out. Nice. And uh, I'm also curious, you picked the Utah JS and Utah.net Slack groups. Do they not have uh, Slack groups for Idaho? Uh, no, I had not found any Idaho Slack groups. There are, you know, there's tons in Seattle that I could join over there, but, uh, being in Idaho, I'm just kind of a little more closer and familiar with you know, the Utah area. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, that's definitely where I live. So I know a lot of the people in at least the JS Slack group I haven't gotten as involved in the .NET group. Yeah, the .NET group's not as active in Slack as the, the Utah JS one. Yeah, Utah JS is a very, very active community. So, and there's actually a Utah JS conference that they hold every September-ish. So. Yeah, there's lots of, lots of really good people on the Utah JS. Yep. Cool. Well, I'm going to throw out a couple of picks, and these are all very, very self-serving. But at the same time, it's also, you know, something that I'm doing for uh, the communities that I serve. Um, <clears throat> your so, podcast, you can do that. Yeah. And that's, that's what it's about. It's about podcasting. So, um, I've had a bunch of people come to me and say, Hey Chuck, I want to start a podcast. Uh, can you help me? And the answer to most of them is I wish I had the time to, and to a select few, a lot of times it's well, sure, but it's got to be under these specific circumstances. And so I'm just going to talk through some of these real quick. Um, one of them is, or one of the situations is if you put the show on devchat.tv. Um, a lot of times I'm, I'm more willing to help shows get started if, you know, if I can kind of bring them into the family and, and put out good content. And I realized that, um, and this was probably within the last week or two, that I really do want to have content out there for everybody in the programming community, which means that, of course, I have to start a whole bunch of shows. <laughs> so um, if you're interested in being on shows on any of the following topics, then you probably ought to reach out to me. One of them is open source sustainability and maintainability. Um, I currently have three hosts lined up for that show. Um, I'd like to get it to at least five. Um, I will not be a co-host on that show. As much as I'm interested in the topic, I just don't have time for more shows. In fact, I'm actually backing out of shows at this point and saying, hey, can you guys run this without me? So, uh, you know, I'm no longer on Adventures in Angular. Um, I'm no longer going to be on Elixir Mix or uh, React Roundup, and I'm very seriously talking to the guys on Views on View and uh, pulling out of that as well. So I continue doing JavaScript Jabber and, and uh, Ruby Rogues. Um, and mostly because that's where my passion is. 
and that's where I feel like I can speak to things specifically. So um, I, I don't feel like I add enough as a host because I just don't have the expertise in those other shows and those other areas. So I may pick those things up later and then, you know, we'll see where we end up, but yeah. So if you're interested in, in being um, on, I was going to say topics. So uh, the topics that we're pulling together, open source, sustainability, maintainability. Um, we have a data science show that's budding. Uh, they've actually been recording. So I don't know if we're looking for more panelists there or not. Um, but then I'm also looking at starting shows on AI and machine learning. So if you have some expertise there, uh, we're also looking at um, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality. And um, what were the other ones? IoT. Um, I'm looking at starting a Python show. I get a lot of requests for that. Um, and I am seriously thinking about doing a .NET show. Um, and so, yeah, so we'll see where we end up there. Um, if you're interested in sponsoring any of those shows, also let me know. And I'm actually starting to pick up um, contracts to represent those shows for sponsorship for, for related shows. So I have an iOS show I'm talking to today. Um, I have another .NET show that I'm talking to today or tomorrow. Um, I've got a few other shows out there. Um, and then lastly, if you have a show out there that you listen to, but is no longer producing episodes, um, especially if they've stopped within the last six months, let me know because a lot of times what happens is they quit producing those shows because they don't have the time or money to continue to produce them. And I would like to take those shows on for devchat.tv. Good idea. And, and yes, the, the onboarding for those is horrendous. Um, but I really want to provide that content for the shows. And I feel like if I pick up a show that's already got traction, um, then we can probably bring on some of the original hosts, um, bring on a few new hosts and, uh, you know, just, just make them continue to be awesome. And that way that if, you know, the, a lot of times the archives are still there for people to listen to, but they still have to maintain that content, right? They still have to keep paying whoever's hosting the, the files and providing the bandwidth and stuff. And we can do that. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's another way for me to just, you know, be out there and make sure that this awesome content doesn't go away. And yeah, some of it goes out of date and some of it doesn't, but uh, at least we can provide that. So yeah, I guess I'm asking publicly for help from people um, to, to help maintain all of that stuff. And then the other thing that I'm working on is a system called PodWrench. And that is, I was looking for something that I could blend like podcast and tool. There you go, PodWrench. Um, and it is a system that will manage the um, recording and production pipeline for the shows and the sponsorship uh, stuff on there. So if you are looking to start a show and you don't want, you know, you don't want to run it on devchat.tv and you want my help, um, the best way to do that is to sign up as a beta user on uh, PodWrench. And so um, I'm getting the last bits of that together and it should all be up and ready to go by the time this episode goes live. So anyway, yeah, talked a lot about podcasting, but that's kind of where my head is at these days. So, so all of those are listed on devchat.tv or will be listed? Um, they are not currently listed and I probably won't list them until we get them launched and get our work and stuff done. Um, okay. I should probably just post a blog post and say, Hey, this is what we're doing. And if you're interested in being on any of these shows, then here's where you can let me know. Yeah, that'd be good. Yep. So I'll get that up, but yeah. Um, but yeah, those, that's all my picks. So I'll go ahead and uh, head us toward wrapping up. Thanks for coming, Sean. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, folks, we will wrap up and we will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.